Kvike is a type of yeast that has been taking the brewing community by storm. There are so many beers being made with this yeast today that you may have never known that it was a traditional farmhouse strain from Norway. Today we're talking to Chip Walton from Chop and Brew. He's going to describe his Norwegian adventure and we're going to talk about Kvike yeast as well as Norwegian farmhouse brewing today on Homebrewing DIY. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Do you have a subject you want to discuss with listeners? Do you even know where to start? Well, if you want to make a podcast and you want to get started now, I could not recommend Anchor enough. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. Creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Hey, look, I shopped around for a place to post my podcast, and Anchor was the easiest, most streamlined experience you could ask for. So if you're looking for a place for your new podcast, Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Building recipes and taking good notes are two of the key fundamentals of making great beer. This is one of the first things that you learn when becoming a new brewer. I started taking notes on a sheet from my extract kit and then quickly moved to brewing software. I've tried many different types of brewing software and then I found Brewfather. This is the one piece of software that you need for recipes and very detailed brew day notes as well as fermentation notes. Brewfather also integrates with some of the topics that we discuss on the show like the tilt hydrometer, the ice spindle, and ferment track. You need no other piece of software than Brewfather. One of the best parts of Brewfather is that you can try it for free. All you need to do is head to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and click on the Brewfather banner to sign up for free today. Once again, that's homebrewingdiy.beer, and sign up for Brewfather today. And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY the show that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this podcast covers it all. Today we're going to talk to Chip Walton of Chop and Brew about his trip to Norway where he learned all about the traditional style of Norwegian farmhouse brewing. But first, we're going to dive into the mailbag. Here is a comment from Evan Sherlock. He wrote in regards to our last episode about homebrew labels. He said, Gip isn't as limited as Photoshop. Give it a go. It does 92% of the same and then 10% different. It's not a linear comparison. I've been using GIMP for 10 years professionally and also learn Inkscape. Open source is relevant and will get you to the same place as expensive software. Search is your friend when learning the differences. Good info on the podcast. Keep it up. 
Also, he directed us to reddit.com forward slash HBL, which is basically homebrew labels. I have to agree with Evan. I'm a heavy user of GIMP and Inkscape both. They're both great powerful programs and the cost is right. They have every tool you're going to need to make a great homebrew label. Thanks, Evan, for the comment. Also, Evan, if you remember, was our guest on the Homebrew Club episode. So he's going to be my co-host on the Homebrew Hacks episode. So speaking of that episode, you need to get your homebrew hacks in by December 10th so that we can read them on the air for our last episode of the year. Email your cool trick or hack to podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer and we'll try to read as many as we can and the top five are going to get a brand new shiny homebrewing DIY logo sticker sent to them. Pretty exciting. Speaking of logo stickers... Did you know that you can get one if you become a monthly supporter on Patreon? Head over to the patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. And if you give even at the $1 a month level, you're going to get a sticker and access to our ad-free RSS feed, as well as bonus content that only patrons get. Head over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY today. I also want to thank our newest Patreon supporter, Zach Tate. Thanks for your support, Zach. I have to say, thank you so much for supporting the show and keeping us up and running every week. All right, let's dive into our episode. We're going to talk to Chip Walton from Chop and Brew, and he's going to discuss with us the ins and outs of Norwegian farmhouse brewing. So I'm sitting here with uh, Chip Walton from Chop and Brew. I'd like to, first of all, thank him for joining us on Homebrewing DIY. Of course. Awesome. Well, we're going to talk to Chip today about his many adventures he just took in Norway, kind of chasing the Kvike strain, and just really the experience he had with a, a true farmhouse brewing experience there. And so uh, let's, uh, you know, welcome him to the show and uh, and start asking him some questions. So I guess the the first question I have for you, Chip, is... Let's talk a bit about the history of how you started Chop and Brew and uh, and kind of uh, how you started making YouTube videos. Uh, yeah, uh, I started homebrewing in 2007 uh, when I lived in Austin, Texas. I'm currently in St. Paul, Minnesota, Twin Cities, Minnesota. So been here for 11 years, 10 or 11. So before that, um, homebrewed in Austin, Texas. I was in the news um, production game as a day job, started brewing um, extract for, you know, half a year or so um, before moving up here. So it's kind of this funny cascading event. I, I started home brewing, I got married, I moved all in a year. <laughs> so like, <laughs> usually home brewing is not in those like life changing, stressful things you can do in one year. But um, so I was home brewing and uh, really just kind of got obsessed with it, obsessed with craft beer. And then when I moved up here, you know, the beauty is in Austin, Texas, you've got Austin homebrew supply. Um, and then when I moved up here at the time, there was Northern Brewer in St. Paul and Midwest. So it was kind of like, I'd never through my short time of being a homebrew known what it was like to live somewhere without a homebrew shop, which years down the road, as I worked in the homebrewing industry, I'd, I realized that's not a luxury everybody has. So I was able to really have that community, tons of clubs around, 
retail. So it was easy to like get in it, get in it deep. And then as luck would have, um, after being up here for a couple of years in 2010, it's hard to say that out loud that that was 10 years ago, but I started working <laughs> at Northern Brewer, a homebrew supply here in the Twin Cities as their kind of like video projects manager, which included doing all the instructional DVDs that come with, you know, your starter kit to um, long and short format videos on YouTube under the Northern Brewer kind of banner but part of that was also doing a show called Brewing TV, which was uh, myself, Jake Keeler, and Michael Dawson, all as part of the Northern Brewer marketing team, conceptualized this web show. And there are so many times during just the looking at it on paper before we actually started doing it, we're like, this is not going to work. You know what I mean? This is just, no one's going to watch this. It's just home brewers and a bunch of goofy guys making jokes and making beer. And that really just blew up in a way that is still kind of hard to wrap my head around how important it was, how big it was. And to this day, how many people still, you know, I come across homebrewers. Yes, but definitely lots of pro brewers who are just like you three are what got me into this. Like I wouldn't be a pro brewer if I hadn't started homebrewing. I wouldn't have started homebrewing if it weren't for you three guys making it seem fun, which was the key. It wasn't, we always used to say it's the, it's the why, not the how. Granted, the how was very much embedded in every episode and every video. Um, but with Bruin TV versus the true Northern Brewer instructional videos, Bruin TV was really more about, well, what, why are you brewing? Is it for an event? Is it a band that you like? Is it a uh, technique you've never tried? Is it because you're going fishing and you want to low? You know, it was much more about the lifestyle things that wrap around home brewing for all of us. Um, but it's really funny when I go back to the way, way back when I lived in Austin, I was actually doing these little 30 and 45 second clips, just kind of, you know, a fly on the wall of a brew day of home brewers and craft brewers. And I just recently ran across that old channel a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, this is, this is like the beginning. This is the origin story of brewing TV and then chop and brew where I realized you know, somebody wants to see this, whether it's highly narrated and produced and polished, or if it's really, again, just these moments of someone else's brew day where somebody a world away can see some equipment, some ingredients, hear a joke, hear a reference, get some history. Um, so how I came to doing the internet videos was by essentially a byproduct of becoming my day job, which was pretty much a dream job situation for quite a while while doing that. Um, and then when, when I left Northern Brewer, I got a job doing like social media and video projects for a brewery here in St. Paul called Summit Brewing Company. Um, I pretty much just kind of took the concept with me because um, Mike and Jake had also left Northern Brewer. So I kind of just wanted to keep the torch burning for this feeling of, uh, you know, a, a group of friends that are pretty much kind of, if you called, wanted to call it the cast of characters of these brewing videos, but that the potential and opportunity was always there to go do a brewery tour or to go travel to another state for a home brewer. And then with Chop and Brew, the idea was kind of also this thing that like, well, if nothing else, food could also be uh, the focus, whether or not. Early on, I very much thought every episode would have 
a bit of each. It would be like, all right, we'll brew and then we'll pair it with a food or the food will be cooked with beer or a brisket brined in a stout wort. And that kind of never took form. It's pretty much one or the other. You know, it might be about smoking bacon or doing a crawfish boil or about doing a dark mild. Um, you know, it, it was early on, it was very more uh, was supposed to be kind of a little bit almost to a point where I think it would have been cheesy if it had been forced to be like, and now the chat portion of the episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. But I, I also feel like that uh, these type of shows, you know, podcasting YouTube are really kind of organic and they kind of become what they are just by doing right. Though I try, I mean, yeah, still after doing this for, um, God, what is it? 13 so like six years almost on my own i still haven't really got a great grasp it's it ever since it became not part of my day job which the beauty was brewing tv was every other week and it was part of my day job so on that every other week cycle you know we would do uh, a week where i would concentrate more on instructional videos for true northern brewer product videos and then people knew that monday of that brewing tv friday week I am editing brewing TV. So it was just so cool. And that's where a lot of the creativity would come out because there was a deadline, but there was enough time to work because it was my actual work day where that's where I'd bounce ideas off Mike and Jake, or I would just run with them as the sole editor. Um, if there was something wacky or funny, and then like sometimes like characters would kind of be born, not like kind of like you said, organically, not forcibly scripted, but suddenly they were just there. Um, but Chop and Brew has never been to a fault as regular as that because, you know, I do have a day job. Like, I left Summit. Now I work at American Public Media, which is essentially eight hours a day of just digital producing something, internet, social, web pages. Um, and then when I was at Summit, those eight-hour days would be social media for beer or producing blogs and videos for beer. So when I come home, it's really been hard to get motivated to still do another two, three, four hours of chop and brew. So it, it has kind of been um, not very formulaic. I would say there are certain episodes that are tasting notes, two people at a table cut and dry. Um, and then there's episodes that take forever to edit. Cause I really want them to be good. I want them to come across, you know, kind of like you're saying almost, um, I wouldn't say like food network or something, but you know, just kind of like a higher caliber of video with like music, really good tweaked audio, some narration. So it kind of comes and goes. There'll be, there'll be fits and starts of where I'm sure fans are like, Oh great. Another video with three people at a table talking about a beer. And then that makes me happy when I finally get one that where we're out, we're somewhere different other than a garage. We're talking to people. Um, there's a lot of cover video to put over talking and it seems way more like a TV show or like a yeah. field produced piece. Um, I really enjoy that. Granted, yeah. um, like I said, the hard part is just, you know, if it were my day job, it'd be a whole other beast and it would probably be way more successful and definitely more regular <laughs> with its frequency. <laughs> it's definitely a passion project, but it consumes a lot of my life um not to get all like tangentially i wouldn't say emotional but just philosophical today i was literally thinking about if i hadn't done this 
for six years, what else could I have done? You know, I'm a musician. I kind of really fell off playing music because of this. I'm sure my wife and I have not done nearly as much around the house or the yard or, you know, it really has become an important thing that I've assigned myself to do at no one's bequest you know, or request other than, you know, at this fact uh, or at this point, you know, um, some Patreon support, uh, a couple of friendly sponsors, which really once that started rolling earlier this year, it really did give me that shot in my arm that I needed. Cause I do feel like I'm working for someone instead of um, just kind of like, Oh, is this that overachieving thing I need this week or not? Yeah. And, well, and I have to kind of admit the same thing. I mean, you don't start a YouTube channel or start a podcast for, for the money. Right. And so the idea is it has to start with a passion project at some point. And then from there, you know, if it ends up, at least my, my approach is that, Hey, if it ends up being somebody becomes a, a patron or I, you know, get some uh, sponsor money that that's a, a nice benefit. But for me, it's about uh, the, the, the motivation to really just kind of talk about, you know, my hobbies and, and how excited I am about them and, and really share that with people. But if you, if you kind of don't have that kind of drive, it, you're never going to have the uh, amount of uh, effort put in to actually, you know, kind of build an audience. It's weird. I can't, I kind of feel like I can't stop it. Yep. You know, there've been times where, you know, through day job and family stuff and grad school. And just like, if I just stopped, what would happen? Um, but I really feel because of that momentum that Bruin TV had. And when Bruin TV stopped, it was very clear that people were like WTF, you know, um, we kind of stopped it in a way that wasn't, uh, I wouldn't say not transparent, but it wasn't really clear what had happened um, because it was tied up in a company. You know what I mean? It was like, well, the bigger thing that no one here really wants to know about or talk about is just like, why did three people, you know, leave a com- one company to go do their own things. Um, but I felt kind of obligated to k- keep that going. And that thing pays off still not as much as it used to. And we could rap for hours if that's because homebrewing isn't as big as it used to, or if because the people I turned on to brewing way back in the day have either gone pro or just given it up, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, I went to NanoCon in Portland in early November and it was kind of the ego boost for, you know, as cheesy as that sounds that I needed. There were a lot of people there that were just like, Oh my God, you know, brewing TV, <laughs> chop and brew, you know, I, de- I definitely don't hear yeah. that as much as I used to. I, there's not, I don't feel like there's an, as many new brewers at all, period. Honestly, I would love to figure out what the key is to getting the next generation of brewers. Um, like up running motivated inspired and then like say hey here's some videos by the way but i mean i I have some pretty good theories on it and i think a lot of it has to do with the delay of purchasing of houses of the generation younger than me i'm a i'm a full-on gen xer uh you know and so i think that uh you know people brewing beer takes space and yeah you can do one gallon batches and you can be motivated in those ways but the idea is that I feel like the kind of average thing for a home brewer is like, Hey, I got a house and I have the space. I have a garage. I can make beer at home and I have space to do that. And if you have an entire generation buckled with uh, things like student debt and uh, you know, putting off buying a house because of that, um, you know, uh, an expensive hobby like 
homebrewing, which, you know, we all say it was cheaper. At least that's what I told my wife. Um, but the idea is that, <laughs> you know, it's not. And so the idea is that uh, I think that that delay is actually what's kind of shown a dip in the home in in homebrewing and i think that as that generation actually starts to buy homes and gets to a place to where they have space to do that and they want to kind of pick up hobbies and passion projects we'll start to see an increase again that's my theory i could be right or i could be wrong so it's awesome that's (laughs) way more um positive and uh okay what's the word i'm looking for that's very optimistic. Well, in a good way. I'm not saying that sarcastically. I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. I only think a lot more of. Um, I just don't know if uh, craft beer availability and ubiquitousness at this point um, caused some people. You know, back in the day, you'd have to brew. You know, you you always hear this like way back in the day. You know, in the late '70s and '80s, you literally had to brew to get something with hops in it or something this that or the other thing it was still even true in like the late 2000s when i started it was um different things that you couldn't get and it may be a style that you could get locally but you still wanted to chase that pliny before it was pliny you know and available and um but i often wonder if it's just you know where we live there's a brewery that just does sours. There's a brewery that just does hazies and pastry sours. There's a brewery that just does, you know, wild fermented. There's a brewery that hangs its hat on German lager. It's really, um, unless you're that kind of personality that feels the need to kind of emulate and perfect something that you like in one sphere because you're just that kind of person that likes to dissect it and rebuild it. Uh, I feared a lot of our drop-off was more... Um, just people could get this stuff. They can get anything they want at this point. So, and this will come, we can obviously come back to this, but that's kind of what I've thought of for my next year or so of brewing is way more this Norwegian kind of style, whether or not it's true to everything I've learned. There's enough new stuff that I can now kind of chase this for a while and with the infrequency with which I actually brew, because I usually shoot people brewing more than I actually brew, uh, shoot video of people <laughs> brewing um, more than I do, you know, the next tier for me to get motivated is really to take it back to kind of doing something I can't get here. So it's funny how that kind of cycle happens for every generation, whether it's someone in the seventies that went to college in Germany and England, and then came back here to only Bud Miller Coors or someone from the late two thousands. that was like, I like sours and triples. And I can't find that to now where we're just like, I want to throw a bunch of wood and juniper and not care about sanitation almost to, you know, a point <laughs> uh, just to see what happens, you know, cause that's kind of the only thing that really is out there to be discovered is just the kind of what if factor like what if i didn't do this what if i mashed at a 160 and what what do these things do you know stuff that other people do know in other parts of the world but we just we haven't experienced it yet yeah and i i completely agree with that because i feel like right now you know kvike is taking off uh breweries are super into it home brewers are super into it it is the hot cool yeast right now but on top of that it's it's not just that it's in every beer it, you know you're seeing it in hazy ipas you're seeing it in in kind of every every type of beer that people can try to put that yeast in they're just trying it and seeing what happens it's actually really cool to see 
a strain of yeast really come out of nowhere and just take off like it has, it's actually been kind of mind blowing. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and I'll preface everything we're going to talk about when it comes to Kvike and Norway is like, I'm not, I'm not an expert at all. I just got pulled into a really unique opportunity to visit um, with some people with, you know, deep traditional roots, you know, who from Norway, who live in Norway and have family connections to a lot of this. So I'm learning a lot more now even than, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. But it's a very, I find myself in this interesting place of research, I guess you could call it, where, you know, over the last two or three years, I've been extremely excited to see this as well with Kvike. Um, but then the more, so Ivar Yaitong, I'll just kind of get into it. He's this awesome dude that lives in Norway who we struck up kind of just a friendship of through him being a fan over Facebook, maybe, God, it's gotta be two or three years ago at this point. And he was kind of approaching me with this. He's definitely not anti and against Americans using Kvike. He, I think most Norwegians I talked to find it mind blowing. Like you said, equally mind blowing and a point of pride that this thing has gone global. Um, but there's definitely a hesitancy because pretty much, and I've talked to several yeast labs that confirm this, but I can't say this is a hundred percent across the board, but for the most part, by the time we get something you know, commercially available through a lab in America, it has been stripped down. I wouldn't say it's been singulated. You know, these Kvikes are, they're like a SCOBY from a kombucha. Their whole thing is their culture. So they're three to 12 strains of something. They could be yeast. Some are confirmed to have bacteria, but like good bacteria. The point is by the time they kind of get commercialized here, they're kind of this one or two strain version of themselves so i agree with yeah you that, that, that makes yeah that makes total sense though because like for example once you take let's take a, a slurry you throw it into a test tube they start to be like oh that's bacteria let's take that out let's you know they're trying to almost purify the yeast so that they can produce it in a in a mass production right. way right and i'm sure part of that is honestly um the obligation of of uh, repeatability um, and reliability. They want, you know, they don't want to sell something that six months apart from you using it two different times, completely different and potentially even like ruining something. So I, I get that. Um, so I'm not sure where we're going with it. And this is what happens once I start talking about this, which is I'm still so torn a little bit, but I'm also still trying to process a lot of what I learned um, when we went there a couple of months ago. Um, so yeah, but that's just kind of, it's not an us versus them thing at all, but it is definitely something you feel when you go over there that people, what Ivar has always wanted from day one. And he has told me this. And it's so funny that ultimately we made it there because the first time we ever talked, he's like, you're coming here. Like it will happen. It may not be this year. You're going to like help tell the world about what happens, you know, and he's not even talking about Norway. He really wants to focus on, he lives um, kind of uh, in an area called like Vasastrand. Um, I think it's like north, northwest of Vas um, on his farm called Saland, S-E-L-L-A-N-D, which is the family name of the farm. So he 
really wanted to show me how it's been done for a long time at his farm. So even as I was literally flying across the ocean to get there, in my head, it's all about Kvike, Kvike, Kvike. We're going to learn about Kvike. It's going to be cool. And then I get there and I'm really realizing it's Kvike, yes, is what they ferment with, but it's so much more about, in his case, the process, this very time consuming process and this very like ingredient specific process that during the week of just being there, there are times that I even forgot that we were fermenting with Kvike until like three days later after brewing, we were drinking out of this giant wooden, you know, yield, this like barrel that he's fermenting in. So it consistently comes back to Kvike because um, he and all these people he introduced us to just they talk about it very mystically, but also very realistically and historically, because a lot of them are, you know, just a few generations away from this way more farm-based culture where these beers were being brewed for celebrations, um, weddings, funerals, births. It really is tied in so much more. And then you realize like, oh, it must be really weird for them to see how like gimmicky we've made, you know, gimmicky is probably not the right word, but how much we've really taken Kvike here and kind of just made it this whole other sensationally kind of selling point of what we're fermenting. Whereas there, you're just like, oh, this is like baker's yeast essentially, or like their California common, or not California, but they're like Chico strain that's just generations old except it also has these magical qualities of fermenting really hot, fermenting really fast. The wort you can throw at it can be this whole other beast that we're not used to hearing about mashed really high, really long. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think that was the key to Ivar just telling me like, you will come here and you will see the old style. And then we did it. And um, I'm slowly editing video from that trip, but there's so much more to come out of it. And I really haven't been able to give it due. Um, it's due justice of even just sitting down and listening to it again, you know, and starting to build those episodes in a way that don't feel rushed because I do feel when the main one comes out, when we're just riding shotgun in this brew cellar brew day with him, it was like a 17 hour day. It's going to really open some eyes to, um, the Kvike is not just this thing that, you know, if you're a pro brewery will help you turn batches of beer, you know, twice a week, it really kind of gets down to him trying to preserve this. Cause even in Norway, it's, uh, I mean, I get the very clear indication. It's not as important to people, um, that it be a thing even, you know, just, you know, like a lost tradition kind of thing that you hear about. So, um, I feel like some obligation and some very and like an honor that he of all people is like you're gonna come here, your camera's gonna show the world this thing, and just like okay, and it didn't happen <laughs> for like two summers, and then this summer I literally just kind of, I just bought the ticket. You know, I watch this guy on YouTube called The Illusion, and he's got this line that he says, "Jump, and the net will appear." And I literally thought that as I was spending, you know, a couple grand. <laughs> <laughs> tickets to go to Norway. I was like, I don't know. This guy claims he's going to put us up and take care of us. And he did. He really, you know, he lives in this family farmhouse, his wife, their kids, they put us up. I mean, we really embedded all in with Ivar. I mean, my wife, Elsa and I, 
just kind of joked it. You know, we felt like foreign exchange students, you know, except <laughs> the school was brewing um, and also cooking. Like we cooked and ate like very at home. We didn't eat out hardly at all until the last night. And that was when Elsa and I were separate. So felt very much like going to meet, you know, like I have a Norway cousin that we have to go hang out with, except I have no Norwegian in me at all. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, let's dive a little bit into the the process. Uh, I know that uh, you were you were uh, you're talking about a 17 hour brew day, and uh, you know we we obviously all know the process of brewing. I think pretty much if people are listening to this show, they generally know that like you have to mash, you have to boil, you have to you know add hops, you ferment, um, you package, you know. What what would you say is the number one thing that you learned from that process that changed your life in brewing forever? And I guess there's, I mean, there's a few things. One, you know, and Ivar says this to me daily, almost on Facebook still, just that time is the the key ingredient. And whether that's the time it takes to do it in the old way, if it's the time it takes or doesn't take in this case to ferment. I mean, there's just this, this idea and it's kind of funny because he likes this thing called slow TV, which I've never really heard of. Apparently it's big in Norway where there's just, it's literally, uh, you know, an hour GoPro video of someone driving or someone skiing or someone tilling their farm. They like this idea of things breathing and seeing the full process. So it was kind of, funny not funny that he's like oh i could watch you know snow falling on a webcam all day we call that slow tv and i'm just like that makes sense because you do not rush anything about your brew day um for him it takes so long because he so he lives in this area uh vastrondi vasastrond i'm always kind of whatever i mispronounce things a lot but anyway he lives in this area where there's kind of a lot of these people whose family brewed in this very particular way um but he of all the people i saw does it still the most spartan you could imagine where he's got this um chenya which is like this wooden handled vessel that we gathered probably holds maybe two liters and he's moving things across this brew cellar three or four times throughout the course of the day with this by hand. So we're talking about this copper kettle that starts filled with mash water at about 160 liters. He's taken that over two liters at a time to this multiple um, rounds of mashing in this other metal vessel. And then it's going into this wooden yield and then all the water comes over, it mashes for a couple hours, and then it goes over back to, you know, everywhere is by two liters at a time. So he, whereas someone else we saw brew in the same kind of mm, tradition of brewing, but not quite as insistent on this manual part, the next day after his brew session, we went to, and it took more like, you know, uh six seven eight it definitely was cut down because this guy was using like a fired um copper boil kettle he was moving things with like valves instead of all by hand so he could get eight liter buckets you know um so that's kind of it's it's hard to explain but there's different people there doing 
um, trying to keep the tradition alive, but to, in very different ways. Um, Ivar is definitely on the far spectrum of, you could see that happening in a place with no power, no electricity, no gas. That is how they brewed. His his um, giant 160, 180 liter cauldron is fired by alderwood and juniper branches, and it burns all day. So his beer gets a smokiness from just sitting on top of, you know, these rolling curls of smoke for hours on end. Whereas um, the other guy we saw, Runa, he, you know, his doesn't have that smoke because it's not sitting on open smoke all day, but it's still these ideas of steeping juniper, mashing real high, mashing real long. There's definitely a time component to it is I guess kind of one of the things I learned, which here, you know, so much of my brewing over my life has always been about trying to figure out how to make that take less time. And I think a lot of us do that, whether it's how we go from, you know, uh, all grain maybe to brew in a bag. So it'd be just that much easier or we buy new equipment or we split and we do like a mash and a sparge at night, clean up to where the next day we just have the boil, even though you're stretching that over two days, it feels like less time of actual away from other things. But the other thing that really just grabbed me was, especially for Ivar, he brews essentially the same beer all the time. And it is, it's just, I mean, he is chasing a tradition and a technique way more than he's chasing anything else, like modern styles or, hey, let's experiment with this, this, or this. He's really just seems to be kind of paying homage and tribute to the people who literally brewed in his brew cellar a hundred years ago or a hundred plus years ago or on his farm a hundred plus years ago. I mean, one of the buildings on his farm has barrels that are dated, you know, a couple hundreds of years ago. And he's like, I know there's Kavike in there. He's like, it's my mission is to, you know, I grow hops pretty soon. We're going to be having malt on this farm again and dry drying that in the woods and in a, in a malt house. And he's like, but my, I need to find a Kavike because right now his Kavike is pretty much the Sigmund Uranus Kavike, but from Sigmund with all of the 12 things in it or the eight things in it. Um, so he's kind of on this quest to really create a Selland farmhouse ale that is just from his his farmstead. And that was really cool. And then beyond that, I mean, just everything about so much is crazy. Like we go out first thing in the morning, he's literally chopping down an alderwood tree to be steeped in this mash water. Um, it mashes really, really high, like 160 degrees. There's all these things that you swear along the way are going to ruin a beer, but then you forget that it's going to be pitched with this magical Kavike thing that over centuries or definitely generations has found what it likes. And it likes, you know, this hard boiled Uber dense and sweet wort and somehow still ferments it down to, 1020 or 1015 and um there's just it kind of taught me that you don't know what you think you know just because you know american 150 degree mash 60 minute mash oh but i can do it in 45 and vorla no 60 and 60 bittering and 10 you know you just kind of learn how much every brewing culture really comes up with its own rules uh even if that rule is kind of like no rules uh, and then to see 
to taste these beers that come out of it. And, you know, they're not unlike a beer. It's not something you can't wrap your head around, but at the same time, it's like nothing you've ever had here by far. You can, you know, one of my most recent videos where Don Osborne and I sit down and drink through four beers that I brought back with us. Um, you know, the American in us wants to constantly compare it to something. Oh, this is kind of like a red ale, an Irish red or a Scottish light. This is almost like an English barley wine. This is like an American barley wine, but with some smoke. And you, you forget that other parts of the world don't even know what those things mean, or at least didn't when these beers were defined, you know, generations ago. Yeah, it's kind of like we're always trying to compare it to our BJCP styles that we always think about or, uh, you know, what we say, you know, a red ale is to us. But in all reality, if you're in a farmhouse and you're making beer, that's just beer. Yeah. It, I mean, it is, it's malts, it's farm hops, it's this Kvike thing that is yeast. So, yeah, and in the end, it it is still a beer. It doesn't taste like... You know, I, I can't even say what it doesn't taste like kombucha or cider or it doesn't taste like medicine. You know, it definitely tastes yeah. like beer. Uh, it just doesn't taste like the beer you're, you know. Yeah, it tastes like their beer and it's their style and it's their tradition. And it's, uh, you know, for me, um, you know, obviously, I, I think that you know, when Saison's really took off, that was kind of the, at least in, in the American world, the first like real takeoff of like the farmhouse styles. But then, you know, there are so many different farmhouse traditions in Europe that, you know, it, it just, it, it's all over the spectrum. Right. Uh, well, yeah. And Lars, right. I mean, Lars is kind of just, um, you know, he doesn't do this professionally, but I, I was, I almost said he makes his living chasing these things down, but he definitely makes his passion. He makes his focus yeah. going all over Europe um, and probably the world, but definitely from Europe, from what I know, just finding these things. And, you know, Kvike is one very small sliver of farmhouse sales. That stuff doesn't yes. exist in France or Belgium or Germany or Latvia. Although there are, I think things in that area, just like cool ships, you know, in Belgium. I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like every culture kind of has its like, let's see what happens if we just let this go kind of thing. And a lot of that still involves a, a controlled yeast or a fermenting agent of some sort, even if they didn't know that that was happening. Yeah. And, and for those that don't know, um, Lars is a, a gentleman who has a blog online and for me, it's it's probably one of the coolest reads in brewing period where he's traveled across Europe and he's seeking out different farmhouse styles from Norway uh, to Eastern Europe. Uh, really, you know, almost every country in Europe has some sort of farmhouse style and tradition. And he seeks these brewers out and does like a blog post on them in very grave in very great detail. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it is definitely a blog that if you've never seen before, you have to check out. So yeah, it's amazing. Like, and he's writing a book, which makes sense. Um, I think for Brewers publication that'll come out in the spring. And, you know, he had been to like Ivar's area and talked to Ivar and some of the other people that we met and um, what Lars also has. And I, I, I assume it's mainly his project, but I know it involves 
tons of people, but he's got this um, Kvike registry, which essentially as a new Kvike is kind of like discovered, analyzed through a lab and named. Um, and they can see like what's in it, like how many strains of yeast, how many strains of bacteria, is it known for esters? Is it raw? And we haven't even talked about this. Is it boiled or is it raw um, preference? Um, so that registry is def definitely worth checking out because of what's on there now, A, but B, as any new Kvike is discovered, it's going, it gets a number. So they're all numbered and then they're named and it's usually uh, like a family name or a farm name or a geographic name, they haven't gone the full American route of just calling Kvike's wacky, cool marketing things. You know, like a lot of our yeast labs have these great names that you're like, that's a funny name and cool, and it makes me want to use it, but I have no idea what to expect from it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> there, um, but that registry is cool. You know, and I, there's Kvike's while I was there that people were like, yeah, oh, we really can't tell you about this because it's being analyzed and it might be, an officially categorized Kvike soon, but you know, right now all we can tell you is that so and so found it at their farm and has been using it for years and years and years. That, that's so that, awesome. That registry is, I think, important um, for anybody that's interested in this. Real quick, I will talk about um, one thing that kind of Evar talks a lot about, and other people now that um, it's funnier. I've met more people from Norway now that I left just because we couldn't meet a lot of these people, but we have our own like little private Facebook group and Evar keeps adding more people to it. And I'm just like, man, these stories are awesome. But um, there's certain Kvikes and the way he says it is a Kv any Kvike will theoretically ferment any word, but there are Kvikes that are what they are because of generations and generations of being put into raw wort which is basically unboiled it's mashed it's brought up to a certain temperature um maybe just to kill off anything almost like a pasteurization but then you cool it to some degree and pitch still pretty hot so it's never actually been boiled and then there's ones like evars that are boiled for like five or six hours open fire you know we're talking about way more boil off than you would ever think um because it's boiling over just like a raging fire. So it's an interesting when he's, thing. When he's, do, when he's doing that boil off, is he adding more water to it? Or is he just starting with a really big pot and boiling it off for five hours? And then he ends with what he ends with. Exactly. Yeah. He, and like I said, cause he's brewed the same thing over and over and over based off kind of a family farm recipe for so long. It's not a mystery what he's going to end up with. Um, yeah. But no, he's not topping it off. It starts at, 160 to 180 liters and then it boils to whatever you know it ends up probably 150 or 60 and then he does a combination of he does keg he's got it's really funny because you just have you're in this what seems like a medieval brew cellar and then all of a sudden there's kegs in a co2 tank and you're like that seems <laughs> like cheating but you've also got you know literally 50 60 gallons of beer you can't just like leave it in this open faced fermenter forever so he does some yeah. um, now i think the key is back in the day the farm party uh or the obskakas they call it like the three day in party would honestly kill off half of it if not more than that and then what you'd be left with might go into like 
jars or some kind of vessel. Whereas now I almost feel bad because he brews still to the scale of the farm, but you know, there's just not that many people around interested in having it or sharing it. So um, he usually, you know, tries to take them to events and parties and stuff like that. But it, it hasn't made him go back to say like, Oh, I'm just going to figure out how to do a five gallon version of this. Cause he doesn't, I don't think the scale would work in his mind. It's like, no, this yeah. is the way it has to be done. So um, I'm actually sipping on right now. He sent me um, a couple of bottles. So they had this Kvike fest. Um, I'm not even going to act like I'm here. I'm going to look it up over on here, but I think it's like called like corn oil festival, basically like, a beer fest of all things Kvike, and it was both home brewers and pro brewers. They did this in October. I believe Lars was there and might even be like part of how it came to be. Um, but it's almost like the homebrew con of Norway, of the traditional beers of Norway. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So he sent me a care package that I got this week. It's just crazy when this stuff shows up because it's always in like soda bottles and PET soda bottles. <laughs> um, so this was in a really special case because he sent me the last bottle of the beer that we brewed when we were there with him that took third place at this festival. He brewed another one or he sent another one that he had brewed since we've been there. And then another fan and now friend, Martin, sent some two raw ales because they met together at this festival, but they also sent me two kilograms of this smoked malt. It's called um, Schorndahl's malt. It's essentially, I'm saying that wrong, Um, but, you know, Alderwood smoked malt, which is what they would use in their really, really smoky beers of this specific region. Um, they sent me two kilograms of that and then a new Kvike strain I've never heard of called a uh, Vinya. So I was looking at that on the registry just to figure out more about it. Um, so now I've got like four different flaked dry strains of Kvike in my base. I just feel like, I don't know what I did to deserve all of this, but I want to do it justice and explain to people what it is instead of, you know, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, like just, fermenting every porter or ipa or saison i can think of with the voss strain that everybody has um but to my point yeah I yeah I, and to me <laughs> oh totally totally but to me it's like uh, i could see you taking those kvike strains and making a pretty cool beer out of them and even trying to you know for example yeah, I don't think you're going to have a cauldron in your basement with a wood f- smoke fire. But the yeah. idea is that, you know, I could definitely see you making a beer with spruce tips in it and trying to recreate as close to that style, maybe using our our equipment that we have here, right? So what I can say, so since I came back, um, well, first what I'll say is, <laughs> sorry, I'm kind of, I do this a lot. Um, I'll, I'll like just come out of like pure silence and say something yeah, you're off cool. the wall and, and my <laughs> wife would be like, wait, were we talking about this? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I was just, I guess I was just thinking it. Um, but so I'm sipping right now his beer that he entered in the competition and um, it's barley wine strength. It's up there in the teens of ABV and it was boiled really long um, to where it went from like one 60 almost down to 130 so we burnt off almost 
almost five gallons of of wort and it's smoky it's beautifully malty it's so rich um from that long boil um but the smoke is just this like really big presence and his malt bill is just um pills are pale at like 80 percent, and then 20 percent flaked oats and this goes back to a farm ratio essentially his farm back in the day was its business was growing malt and it would have done about 80 percent malt production and 20 percent oat so that literally affects how he builds a grain bill and then the alderwood and the juniper are kind of this um and the kvike this trinity of ingredients that have to be in there and everywhere we went there was people steeping juniper and alderwood in both the mash water and then the sparge water so there's just this you know it's this thing that to me just seems like so worth trying to kind of imitate um but then you sit back and realize like oh but these guys just they wouldn't do it any other way so i'll bring that back to here the first beer that i brewed here with a lot of process and method from there granted exactly like you said i probably won't ever have a cauldron i've actually got a friend that i think could make us a smaller one but trying to make this something i could do in my garage and a friend of mine father unfortunately passed away and i just i had this spark of just motivation to brew this beer because i'd heard the story in norway how they were like yeah you know that's the beauty of kvike is you can brew for a funeral in america you can't brew for a funeral you know a funeral happens within a week of the passing there's not time to really brew this beer unless you had already had it but there they literally will find out about a death and they will brew and it'll be ready so i found out and I felt like I had to do this. So instead of alderwood and juniper, uh, I used applewood chips and juniper, which sounds bonkers. But when I did a test steep on my stovetop, it was amazing how much those applewood chips affected um, what would become mash water. It made it this like deep black tea kind of red color that is exactly what the water there looked like um i found the safe tree a juniper tree here that i know is safe and that's definitely something to note about junipers there's there's juniper and there's cousins of juniper and like cedars of different sorts and they're not all um healthy <laughs> they're not all non-poisonous so you have to be very aware of that but um so i steeped my mash water i did this mash uh at pretty much his ratio um but because i wasn't gonna be able to get that smoke in there i used a smoke malt that i got from virginia a while back a mesquite smoked malt so i was really trying to get these elements in there in a way that wasn't just oh this is cool bro you know i was really trying to pay some respect to the process mash for two or three hours at 160 which just seems to us like that doesn't make sense that's not going to be fermentable um run off boil it for three or four hours i think i only did like three and pitch kvike and this kvike was this the flakes that he had given me while we were there that came back in an ice cream bucket in my pack in my luggage um you know in these flakes i put it in some of the first running wort and you know, even though we're about to boil for two or three hours, by the time I boiled, there was already like a two-inch croisin on this jar of, you know, a cup of wort and these flakes because that stuff is just ready to go. Um, and the beer, when I tasted it, it was such 
like a rush to close my eyes and taste it. It's clearly not Ivar's beer or a Norwegian beer, but it really had that long boiled malt flavor. It had that smoke in my case from malt rather than a giant fire um, slowly kissing over a cauldron all day. It had that Kvike that is the only Kvike that he pretty much uses from Sigmund. Um, it was a, it was a great moment to feel like I was on the right path of trying to kind of pay tribute to this, you know, um, if I could get a cauldron and have like a wood fired fire, do all the smoke flavor, I would do that. But, um, thankfully now I have two kilograms of Alderwood smoke malt for my next beer. Um, but on a very like small scale way, I was, I was really proud to then be able to give a couple of those bottles after just four days to my buddy and just, you know, kind of feel like I was passing on some kind of tradition here. That's awesome. I, I mean, I think about that. You went grain to glass in four days and, and made a, a really special beer for somebody. That's really cool. Um, yeah. Where, where do you, let's, uh, let's, what are you, what are you currently brewing? What, what, what is it? What's, uh, what's your, uh, what, what's your, uh, or what's in the planning if you're not brewing something? Um, I definitely, well, I want to kind of take this process and kind of, like I said, I, I mean, I don't want to get like Evar and like, this is the only thing I brew for the rest of my life. I'm chasing that farmhouse ale, but I definitely am going to brew the guy who sent me the smoked malt, sent me a suggested recipe for this malt, um, saying that the guy who malts it, um, or, I don't, it's, I don't think it's a recipe of the guy who malted it, but he basically sent a recipe um, that he thought would be good for this. So that's the one of the next brews. And then he like randomly threw out there. He was like, oh, it's a Christmas recipe. And I was like, well, pff, now I have to brew it. And I have to brew it <laughs> fairly quickly, but not as quickly as you would for, you know, a beer that takes two or three weeks to like ferment and condition. You know, I just have to get it in soon. Um, but it's got some pale crystal the smoked malt is honestly the highest percentage of malt in it some dark syrup and flaked out so i'll be i'll be doing that and then um i got a grandfather that if you look at my youtube channel or website the most recent episode is two beers that came out of that they were identical grists with different hops just to really as i say kind of like kick the tires on the grandfather so um I think the next few brews will be a combination of still working with this concept of what I learned in Norway and some of these ingredients that I've been lucky enough to get with not in that's not a grain fathery kind of recipe to me. Cause it's just like, yeah, the long, long mash, put that in a cooler. Um, but for the grandfather itself, I want to try um, some porters and some stouts, some things that aren't, you know, a pale ale, which is what I've had out of it so far is two pale ales, fairly similar, very different hops. Um, but because of the grandfather too, I'm interested in doing some step mashing. And now that it's winter here, literally about to be snowing here, um, it'll be a good time to do, I think, some loggery things, some Pilsners, maybe some Bach. I'm a big fan of Sammy Claus, but I know that the grandfather is going to have a hard time holding that malt bill for a full batch, which is also 
you know, it's like a 14% beer, so you may not need five gallons of it anyway. So I'm going to try to do um, a Sammy Claus maybe in that. Um, we're definitely going to do the mash. I'm having a little Sammy Claus party on December 6th. And um, <laughs> I got inspired by a friend of mine in Milwaukee who, when he brews, he does, he'll do a separate mash just so he can have like hot scotchies on on demand instead of, you know, he wants to keep having the hot scotch instead of just that one with the first runnings. So I think I'm going to do a Sammy Claus hot scotchy station at this party. And then maybe I'll ferment what's left over if there's any left. Um, but I'm really just interested, you know, and it's kind of funny because I know that people are burnt out on Kavike. You'll see, you know, like Milk the Funk is a group where like, I think people are kind of like, over it but then when they see something like what i've presented i think it kind of like perks their ears up a little more because it's not just hey let's throw it in another american style but it's really more about the tradition but i definitely as long as ivar keeps and his friends keep sending me these different cultures i i want to try stuff with them and i don't necessarily want to try just throwing it in american standard beers so um that's where having this like Kavite connection group is just um, like an invaluable resource essentially. Cause they're giving me recipe ideas. They're giving me, they're like um, one thing that I got is these two cans of craft beer, this brewery over there called Bigland, I think B Y G L E N D. They're doing a series called for the love of Kavite. And they're literally going to try to brew with each of the, I can't remember how many, there's dozens of Kvikes right now, a whole series where they essentially take the Kvike from the family or the farm and they try to get a recipe that's as close as to what would have been traditional there and put it through its, you know, put it onto a pro scale. So I have two of those cans that I'm just like, I don't know who to share this with. I have to make sure it's very controlled and I want like legit, you know, thoughts and taste. I don't want to just throw this in a night of tasting where you're like, yep, there's all the cans from last night and who knows what that tasted like, you know? <laughs> um, but it's funny because at the bottom of those cans, theoretically, if decanted and held properly, I could, you know, I could brew six beers with these different strains. So it's kind of overwhelming because I really don't know if I have the bandwidth to treat all of these different Kvikes with the respect that I feel like they deserve. I'd hate to just be like, oh, it got old, so I dumped it. You know, that's kind of the double-edged sword here. Is now I'm getting so much cool stuff that I really need to kind of like own own a schedule, come up with a schedule for this. Like, if I have a friend of mine who has all of his brew days scheduled for 2020. That's the kind of organization that I need in my life. Uh, I need that kind of organization as well. Uh, I yeah. feel like, I feel like I'm, I'm really organized at work. And then the second I get home and start thinking about my brewing or my, even my podcast, it's like, uh, I need to make something happen. And it's kind yeah. of just on a whim. <laughs> I mean, honestly, a lot like it's, you know, and you'll probably feel this to some extent, but a lot of times, I brew because of what I think we need a video on, or I brew because, you know, we got some ingredients that I, you know, I don't know what to do with them, but I don't want them to go to waste. So um, it's kind of the weird thing. I, 
I think my brewing in general is interested in historical styles, but I don't necessarily do that. Those are the things that I I want to do. Or when you see something like um, the peche or like that fermented pineapple drink, like those, yep. are, I just I kind of want to get into that. It go. It really goes back to I want to brew something that I I don't need a five gallon batch of, but I also can't go out and find. Um, what are you brewing? What are you brewing, man? I'm brewing hot sauce right now. <laughs> really? I've got, yeah, See? I've got I've got a whole bunch of uh, fermented hot sauces going. Uh, I've got uh, a, a, I, I got I ran into a bumper crop randomly of uh, Fresno chilies, and so I started throwing uh, some habaneros in there and some serranos. <laughs> uh, I'm doing a lacto uh, uh, brine uh, ferment with those, and uh, it, it actually and, and I throw a kiwi in there randomly and some garlic, and it makes an amazing hot sauce that uh i put on everything i I have like all my food is slathered in it right now (laughs) so that that's been kind of my thing and then uh i had a friend who's uh uh uh, his he's a he's a really amazing brewer he's actually episode three on my podcast and his uh um he 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 loggers a lot of beers and his loggering uh chamber died on him and so he's actually filled all of my fridge space with his loggers and so i actually if i brewed something i couldn't put it in my kegerator right now so i'm actually out of beer (laughs) it's a sad state at my house right now (laughs) totally down for the hot sauce thing i wish i was more my um wife would probably hate to hear me say i wish i was doing more with hot sauce because i have more in my fridge than i could do i really need to bottle some and give them away for christmas gifts but yeah, I've I made a hot sauce this year that I'm more proud of than probably any beer I've ever made. So I'm totally feeling you on that. Yeah, I'm the same way. It, it, it's fermenting, and and to be honest, like I ferment all kinds of stuff, not just beer. I have like the kimchi collection going. <laughs> I, I actually make this uh, a kimchi brine fried chicken sandwich that is mind blowing, and uh, and it actually starts with me making kimchi from scratch. Um, it starts with uh, you know, and then obviously you got to let it get funky, and then I brine a uh, chicken uh, thighs in it with uh, buttermilk for eight hours in in kimchi brine and buttermilk, and then the kimchi powder. And it is the best fried chicken sandwich I think I've ever had in my entire life. So that is crazy. I'm coming to Denver. We're going to do that episode. Okay. You come to Denver and I will go through how to make a kimchi brined, a hot Korean chicken sandwich. It's amazing. (laughs) That is wow. I've, I've just been hearing, I've been obsessed, not obsessing, but like watching a lot of Turkey stuff. I work at, for the splendid table and we're coming up on, well, this will come out after the fact, but we're coming up on Thanksgiving Turkey confidential, which is a live call in show we do. And I've been watching, I went down a rabbit hole of awesome Turkey videos today. And Bon Appetit has an awesome video where they roast like 20 turkeys over the course of a few days to just try every variant you could possibly think of. And at one point they like question whether they should try to buttermilk, um, essentially buttermilk brine a turkey and uh this one woman was like don't she's like you can do that with chicken but don't do it with turkey it'll essentially start to just cook it to where then when you roast it it mushes out so i was like oh but then you hear so much good thing about buttermilk 
brine chicken. So that's yeah, so and, cool and, that you're and, doing and that. With, and with this, you got to be super careful because uh, uh, a you got to get it salty enough, and b you can't do it very long, like eight hours max, and then it, otherwise, just like you said, it starts to get too mushy, and it and it changes the the texture isn't right. So <laughs> yeah, exactly that. So yeah, uh, well, uh, hey. Uh, I want to say, Chip, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has uh, been a, a, an amazing conversation, and I have to admit, I learned so much more than I, you know, I thought we were going to maybe focus on some yeast and some farmhouse traditions. And I have to admit that, like, uh, your trip and your experience was uh, uh, kind of uh, a, a mind blowing experience. And I'll make sure that in the show notes, we're going to put in uh, links to some of the uh, Kvike videos that uh, Chip already has made. And obviously, please go to Chop and Brew on YouTube. You should subscribe and follow his channel because what you're going to find, obviously, when he produces the video that he's making of his trip is uh, uh, some, some, some brewing that you're not going to see anywhere else. So uh, you uh, should definitely do that. And a couple of the videos that are out now do have clips of it you know i would call it cover video so you start to really see like what but yeah, yeah. that one where we're just i mean and i'm scared honestly to start editing it because i think it may have to be like an hour and 15 but that may just have to be the way because i mean i want it to be kind of this go-to resource for anybody who ever you know, literally for someone that might be doing research papers on this kind of stuff, um, instead of cutting it into three and making it feel like you're really leading people oh, to monetize video number three. You know what I mean? Like, I really just I'm, I'm apprehensive about even starting because I'm so worried about how long it could get um, because hey, we uh, have so many good conversations with Ivar and there's so much just mind blowingly different video than anything you're used to seeing over here. That's awesome. And I have to admit, um, you know, at least with me and with with the audience that uh, we're talking to here, uh, I don't think long form is nef- necessarily an issue here. Um, I think podcast TV. listeners. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, definitely excited to see that video and we'll definitely make sure uh, you, we, we check it out. And, and like I said, also love to have you back on the show sometime. And, uh, you know, if you ever come to Denver, I would love to have you by and I'll make you a hot Korean chicken sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Hey, thanks, Chip. Man, this is awesome. Thank you. I'd like to thank Chip for being on the show. We dove into a lot more subjects than just Kvike and Norwegian brewing, but in the end, it was just a great conversation. If you head over to homebrewingdiy.beer, our website, you can get more detailed show notes and I'll have links to Chip's YouTube channel with videos specific from his Norway trip. Well, that's it for this week and we'll talk to you next week on Homebrewing DIY.